0: Today and then uh, next week will be our kind of last of our summer series in the book of Acts and we'll jump back into the thread and finish by, uh, by Advent or Christmas this year. So um, I'm here this morning both excited and then also a little bit tired. We had our elder retreat this weekend, um, meaning our elders gathered and spent a few days, oh there they are, look at that, uh, out at Mike Waters' house, um, Praying for you guys, working through a vision process. And can I just say, uh, you guys are in good hands. Those, those men love you dearly and are committed to praying for you and seeking, uh, seeking what God has for the, the future of our church. So one of the things we do at every elder retreat is we pray through the list of members uh, just because that's our great privilege. And so um, let me tell you, that member list gets prayed through by a bunch of people, and so if you are kind of on the fence about membership, maybe let that push you over the edge of like, hey, these are the people that we regularly intercede with, uh, with the Lord for, because uh, these are the ones that God has held us responsible to shepherd. Um, we also kind of work through a, a vision process together that I look forward to rolling out more and more, but just kind of why we exist and who we serve and what we value and what, what we're going to count and then we just really try to pray through really four things, just a 10-year a prayer of, God, if you showed up, what would that look like in the next decade? We tend to overestimate what we can do in a year and underestimate what God can get done in a decade. Uh, we've been here 15 years. I can testify to that, okay? Uh, What's our three-year picture of what we envision Rock Hill looking like in three years? What's our one-year plan? And what's our 90-day priorities? And so uh, there's nothing magical about that, but it just is a process to try to get us all on the same page and lead together as a team. So that happened. Uh, I look forward to rolling out more and more of, of that when we solidify it. But let me pray, and we'll be in Acts 18. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the chance that we have to open up your word and hear from you. And God, I pray that these encourage everyone listening like they've encouraged me over the years. And so, Jesus, would you, by your Spirit, speak to us, encourage our hearts, help us to know your love for us. God, help me to get out of the way so that that happens. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, So over the years, I've found that the Spirit has brought me over and over back to this passage, particularly when I'm feeling discouraged. Here we have a story of the Apostle Paul going to the city of Corinth, uh, an economically prosperous but morally lax city, and a unique thing happens. At the time where Paul usually moves on and goes to another city, Jesus appears to him in a vision. And he says, Do not be afraid. But go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. See, Jesus doesn't appear in a vision a whole lot, but he does here, and the result of that is that Paul stays in a city longer than any city he'd previously stayed at. Over the years, um, as a pastor in this city, there have been some discouraging moments. Some unbelievably encouraging ones, but some really discouraging moments. One, moments where, I'm sure you've had them as well, you wonder, is my life making any difference at all? Moments where it may, maybe it feels like the, the movement of the gospel has slowed or even it looks like it's stopped. And when I get to those really down moments where I'm just discouraged. Inevitably, the Spirit brings me back here, and in particular, to the words that Paul heard from Jesus. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Now, I don't live in Corinth. You don't live in Corinth. There's uniqueness to this, like I'm not necessarily under threat to be beaten, but I do get discouraged. And I am tempted to remain silent, and I'm tempted to sometimes fall into the grass is greener syndrome. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, wouldn't it be great if I was somewhere else doing something else? I mean, we all fall prey to the grass is greener syndrome, right? i found over the years, this is, this is not unique to me, but the grass is green where you water it, not where you look, <laughs> okay? But inevitably, the Spirit will bring me back here and remind me, there are many people in this city that are mine, and so stick it out. Just stay in it. Keep preaching the gospel. You are not alone. Jesus is with you. The Spirit is with you. And because God is sovereign and has called some people in this city, you just got to keep preaching. And they'll be saved. They'll be drawn in. Now, this passage may not hit you the same way that it hits me, as personal to you as it does to me, but my guess is you've been in spots where you wonder, is my life making any difference at all? Am I actually serving God's kingdom purposes or am I just kind of frittering my time away? Do my, co- do my coworkers notice anything different about my life? Am I being an effective witness at all? Or do those middle school kids that I meet with weekly in small group, are they getting anything? Or are they just there for the mountain dew? Or, or you know, some of you guys like labor faithfully downstairs in kids' ministry, and you prepare those lessons and you pray over those kids and you teach them, and you wonder. Did, did anything at all hit? Or did, did they just really get excited about the fishy crackers? I think this passage is going to encourage you with the reality that God is with you and that your ministry is not in vain. And so, in light of that, keep going, keep plugging away. Whether you're a homeschool mom, whether you are an engineer, like laboring in the same firm, whether you're a student, whether you're a teacher, wherever you are, whatever sphere God has called you to be in, keep going. Your work is not in vain. All right. Let's read the story. Acts chapter 18, the first 11 verses. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. So he'd previously been in Athens preaching at the Areopagus, showed us a lot about how to do evangelism last week. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed him and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. teaching the word of God among them. So Paul travels the 50 or so miles from the city of Athens down to the city of Corinth. You can kind of see it on that map there. Uh, it I tried to blow it up a little bit, but it's just not very far away. The city of Corinth actually was, was located really close, or on that narrow strip of land between the southern part of Greece and the northern part of Greece. If you're like a, a, a science person, it's called an isthmus. okay? It's three and a half miles wide, and because of that, Corinth kind of was the, was the trading center of Greece and Macedonia, what would happen is that ships would come on one side and rather than traveling around the entire southern tip of Greece, which was a a fairly treacherous journey, they would often unload their cargo, cart it the three and a half miles across, load it up on the other side and go from there. Or if you had a really smaller, like a smaller boat, they would just load up your entire boat and like put it on carts and roll it away. And in fact, Nero, a, a couple decades later, started to build a canal to to basically connect these two seaways so that Corinth became an even more important. And actually, you can see in the next slide that that canal didn't get finished because it was a massive undertaking, but got finished in the 19th century, and now you can actually go and see it today. So Corinth is this uh, city that's really wealthy, really important. It's more of a Roman city than it is a Greek city, only about 100 years old at this time. But because of its wealth and seaport, Corinth was known not just for its economic trade, but for the more seedy parts that happened at a sailing town, right? All kinds of immorality, kind of like we would we would uh, refer to Vegas today, or maybe Amsterdam or Tijuana, right? Cities that it's not just bad things that happen there, but a lot of times people go there for bad things, right? In fact, uh, a Corinthian companion was essentially a prostitute. Prostitute, okay? So. We'll see this reality in Paul's follow-up letters to the the church in Corinth, that there's like a lot of problems going on in this city. There's a lot of immorality everywhere. But Paul is here, and he's planned on being here, and this is his ministry. Um, While he's there, we we read that he meets this Jewish-Christian couple by the name of uh, Aquila and Priscilla, or Aquila and Prisca we see in other places in scripture. Uh, Keep in mind, Silas and Timothy are still back up in Thessalonica and Berea ministering to the churches there. They haven't yet, like, caught up with Paul. Uh, he was in Athens for a short time. Now he's in Corinth. And while he's waiting for them, he actually meets this Jewish-Christian couple. And we read that they kind of partner together in ministry, that they're both tent makers by trade, that he stays with them. He kind of agrees to work with them. And, and because of that, he starts ministry even before Silas and Timothy and the rest of the team get there. He, he does ministry with, with Priscilla and Aquila, okay? Um, notice that the Apostle Paul often paid his own way. Uh, it says that he was a tent maker or a, a leather worker by trade. And actually, by partnering with Priscilla and Aquila, like they were able to like do a little bit of work, meet their own needs, but then also free themselves up to do ministry in this particular city. Now, a little bit we learn about Priscilla and Aquila is that they used to be in the city of Rome or in Italy, but that they had to flee. They, were, they had been kicked out of Italy along with all of the other Jewish people because of an uprising during the reign of Claudius. Okay, okay. Actually, if you go into history, we we read a little bit about this particular uh, brouhaha that happened in the reign of Claudius. A a Roman historian by the name of Suetonius writes about it, and it's actually really interesting to collaborate some of the work of the early church. In 49 AD, uh, there was a, uh, a conflict that rose among the Jewish people about a guy by the name of Crestus, Crestus. Um, sounds an awful lot like Christus, doesn't it? And and rather than dealing it, dealing with it, or or trying to get to the bottom of it, uh, Claudia simply says, "All the Jewish people out." And kicks him out of the city of Rome. I mean, just shows you a little bit of the kind of like no checks and balances kind of power that these Roman emperors had. But it also reminds us that, that by 49 AD that this little movement of Jesus' followers had, all, had made it all the way to the capital city of Rome even though the Apostle Paul, who's like the primary missionary arm of the church, hasn't gotten there yet. How did that happen? Well, ordinary Christians that you've never heard of in their business dealings in Rome, in their travels, in their, in their journeys, tell people about Jesus. And so even though we're reading about the expansion of the church by the Apostle Paul and his ministry team, that it's actually happening all over by unnamed Christians that we don't know the stories of. People like Aquila and Priscilla, maybe some of them who had traveled to that first Pentecost feast when the Holy Spirit was poured out and stayed and were part of the early church. When they got kicked out and when they were spread because of persecution, wherever they went, they brought the gospel with them. I don't know if that's encouraging to you, but it's encouraging to me that we often read the highlights. We read like the the massive movement leaders, and yet the gospel had gotten to the city of Rome by someone we have no idea who. Don't for a second believe that your life and your ministry doesn't matter in the ordinary grind, or that only professional Christians really advance the cause of the gospel. That's a lie. Or that in order for you to actually be making a difference, you need to rise to a level of prominence that people write stories about it. That's a lie. Most of the church and most of the work of the church and the mission of the church is never noticed except by the people that it actually transforms their life. So be encouraged by that. But they're, they're in the city of Rome. They get kicked out along with the rest of the Jews, and so they end up in the city of Corinth. Um, now this is, I, I just... Aquila and Priscilla are an incredible couple. And if I had time, or maybe if you want to do a study on what partnership looks like in marriage and how marriage can serve and advance the cause of the gospel, do a little study on Aquila and Priscilla. You will not be disappointed. I mean, this was like a powerhouse couple. So, they meet with the Apostle Paul in the city of Corinth. Because of their source of income and their common trade, they kind of partner together to do the work. And in a lot of ways, they start paying the bills so that Paul can be freed up to do the ministry of the word. Um. But Aquila and Priscilla are actually mentioned quite a few times in the scriptures. They, they play a prominent role in the development of three churches. The church in Rome, which they got kicked out of, but then they're referred to back in the, book of, or the letter to the Romans as a greeting from them. Um, the city of Corinth, and actually, they're going to be the ones that start the church in Ephesus, not Paul. They're mentioned in three of Paul's letters in 1 Corinthians and Romans and in 2 Timothy, and multiple times in the book of Acts they pop up. And each time they're mentioned, it's as a couple, and it's either sending their greetings or being commended by the Apostle Paul for their faithfulness in the work of the gospel. They were probably well off. Because wherever they go, they essentially establish a beachhead and have a household or a home big enough to kind of house the church and, and host a church so that others can continue doing the work as well. They actually teach and help a guy by the name of Apollos, and they help train him in the, in the, the truth of the gospel. So, I mean, they're, they're an incredible ministry couple. Actually, if you step back and, and look at this story, the Bible actually presents a really compelling view of both marriage and singleness and how it serves the kingdom of God. It's not married people or single people, but rather both of them that are, are seeing both Aquila and Priscilla partnering in ministry and able to do things because they're on the same page. And then people like Paul and Silas and Timothy, who are single men, who are like completely devoted to the work of the Lord and able to do things that some married couples couldn't do. I just think that needs to be said. Often, it's in these core relationships that we live out the implications of the gospel the most. And churches, rightly, should focus on marriages and family. But, but historically, Christianity has, has upheld both marriage and singleness and cast a beautiful vision of what life and ministry looks like in either. I'd love to just maybe do a whole sermon on that sometime. But Aquila and Priscilla, powerhouse couple, Uh, We're going to come back to them next week in Ephesus. But we see then that eventually Timothy and Silas get there. Verse 5, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word. So he's already doing the work of ministry, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. We've seen this before, over and over and over again, right? Like we've seen this play. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads, I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Again, we've seen this happen over and over and over again in the cities. And typically, the Jews get jealous at that point, and they start an uprising, and they kick them out of town. Verse 7, And they left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, and his house was next door to the synagogue. Okay, that's a little funny, isn't it? Have you ever been to, like, a small town and gone to, like, the old, like, Town squares, and you see First Baptist Church, and then across the square, you see Second Baptist Church, and you're like, I wonder what happened there. Right? And then you see Third Baptist Church, and, and then there's just an open plot waiting for the next conflict, right? Uh, I'm not trying to pick on Baptist, it could be Presbyterian, it could be Methodist, it could be any of those, right? But here you got Paul setting up shop right next to the synagogue at, at Titius Justice's house and preaching the gospel. And then we see something really interesting happen. Verse 8. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Ooh, the pastor believes. Or the ruler of the synagogue, the leader of the local synagogue is like, Paul, you made a good case. This Jesus is the Christ. And he believes that he's baptized, and his entire family believes and is baptized. That's new. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in the city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So we've seen this pattern play out over and over and over again, but something unique happens here. First, the ruler of the synagogue, the pastor or overseer of these people, converts to the point where actually later in the story, in verses 12 to 18, they have a new synagogue ruler. The guy lost his job. He got kicked out, okay? Second, at the exact moment that Paul usually leaves and goes somewhere else, when when things are getting a little hot, when there's opposition, Jesus shows up and he speaks to him in a vision and the result of that vision is that he stays for another year and a half longer than he stayed anywhere else. So what did Jesus say that was so impactful? He says five things. Two commands and three promises. Do not be afraid. Go on speaking. Those are the two commands. Three promises. For I am with you, No one will attack you to harm you, and I have many in the city who are my people. So let's just kind of walk slowly through those, because I think they're incredibly powerful and encouraging. He says, first of all, do not be afraid. Now, why would he have to say that? Because there's reason to be afraid, right? I mean, Paul's been driven out of many cities because of mobs. He's been stoned. He's been arrested. He's been beaten and thrown in jail. There's a lot of reasons to be afraid. And Jesus says, do not be afraid. Do you know the most repeated command in all of the scriptures? I'll give you a hint, I just said it. Do not, do not be afraid. Now why do you think God would say that more than any other command to his people? Because there's a lot of uncertainty in the world. In, in many ways, there's a lot of reasons to be afraid. There's opposition to God and his people in this broken world. There are all kinds of crazy, cra- crazy random things that can happen, right? Right? I mean, some of us are more anxious by nature, some of us are more calm by nature, but there's a lot of things that can go wrong in this broken world. And in particular, if you're stepping out in faith and proclaiming Jesus, there's even more things that can go wrong. And yet, we need to be reminded over and over and over again do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Because God, who he is, and if you're in Christ, what he already thinks about you. That's cause enough to not be afraid. Who he is, he is powerful and in control, sovereign over human history, but he's also near and intimately involved in our lives. And in Christ, he's already demonstrated for Christians, for us, what he thinks about us. And so if those things are true, that's a lot of reasons not to be afraid. But even in this story, why would they be afraid? Well, I don't know. Crispus lost his job. He'd find a new way to support his family. I mention this because for many of you, that's your biggest fear. What happens if I lose my job because of my faith? Well, then you get another job. And you know what? What? You'll be okay. Now, that's not reason to just be crazy and to get yourself at odds with every HR department. Like It's not a license to be obnoxious, but it is a a reassurance that God's got you. He does. And that you're not supposed to be afraid. What if you lose a relationship over it? What is your greatest fear? And how does who God is and what he's told you undermine even the greatest fear that you have. That if the gospel's true, and it is, it's actually not a good reason to be afraid. See, fear causes us to do crazy things. It does. It causes us to respond in ways that we would never respond otherwise. It causes us to justify things that we would never justify in a clear frame of mind. And so the Bible repeats over and over again, do not be afraid. Some of you guys just needed to hear that this morning. Don't be afraid. God's got you. But go on speaking and do not be silent. So don't just just not be afraid, but actually do something. Do what God has entrusted you to do. Don't quit. Keep sharing the gospel. Don't give up. Don't be discouraged. Keep speaking. Keep preaching. Keep reasoning. Keep pursuing relationship. Now that doesn't mean that you don't use wisdom. You do use wisdom. But keep doing it. It reminds me of a, a story in Jesus' life where his disciples couldn't help but speak. People couldn't help but talk about him. In Luke 19, as he was drawing near, already on his way to the, down to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Those were some politically charged words, weren't they? To declare another king in a Roman province? With Caesar being king? Those were fighting words. Those were things that got rebellions quashed. And so some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Do you have any idea what they're saying? And you know what Jesus' response was? He answered, I tell you, if these were silent... The very stones would cry out. Paul, here's the words from Jesus. Do not be afraid, but keep on speaking, keep on preaching, don't be silent. Creation sure won't be. Some of, the, some of you this morning just need to take heart and receive those two commandments. But let me, let's be honest, they're hard, aren't they? Like there, There's a cost, there's a reason to be afraid. There's a reason sometimes that we're silent. And so, In addition to these two commands, Jesus gives three reasons or three promises why he should continue. First, I think maybe the most important, I am with you. For or because I am with you. Jesus is with us. Jesus is simply restating the promise that he gave his disciples in the Great Commission and now to Paul here. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus says, I have all authority, and I will be with you wherever you go, so make disciples. So what gives hope to that command, right? Because where the king goes, people bow. Where we go, the king goes. So where we go, the king goes. And where the king goes, people bow. Not to us, but to the king. Jesus is with us. He has all authority. He has sent and empowered us through the power of the Holy Spirit that he poured out on his disciples. And he poured out on you and I. And so where we go, we bring the power of God into that particular reality in that moment. The Spirit is there. So it ain't all on you. I will be with you. Now, here's the thing you don't have to be impressive because Jesus is. Yes. Your ministry will succeed for the purposes that it was sent out for. So you don't have to be afraid. Jesus is with you. Uh, not only that, he says to Paul specifically, No one will attack you to harm you. Now, this isn't a universal promise to all Christians everywhere. In fact, we know because a lot of Christians do get attacked. They do get persecuted. In fact, this wasn't a universal promise to Paul for his ministry forever moving forward. Because he goes to another place and he gets attacked and persecuted. But he says, you know what? Stay a while. It's not going to get that unruly. And in fact, it's when it does get unruly, 18 months later, that Paul's like, oh, I'll take that as the cue to leave now. Okay? Okay? Final, and the final reason I think is so sweet if you think about it. It's such an encouragement. He says, Jesus says, because there are many in this city that are my people, that are mine. Um, This statement by Jesus shows the working together of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Do you see that? There are my people here, Paul, people that I have chosen and I have called, so you need to stay and preach the gospel to them. And he does. See, just because God elects and chooses people to respond to the gospel does not mean that he doesn't also choose to use you to reach them. God is sovereign over the end result, but he's also sovereign over the means, and you're the means. He sends you. He sends me. Now, some of you guys are thinking, I mean, he could send visions and angels to everyone. He does that sometimes, doesn't he? But isn't it crazy? He doesn't. He sends you. And even some of the the more miraculous visions that we see of angelic visitors or Jesus visiting people in dreams, you know what he tells them? So-and-so is going to be coming tomorrow, and they're going to tell you about me. Now, that sounds incredibly inefficient, doesn't it? Like, you're there in a dream. Why don't you just tell them who you are? But no, he holds off and he says, This person's going to come with a book and it's going to tell you about me. Or this person's going to come and they're going to tell you about me. That's incredibly inefficient. Some of you guys are thinking, God, angels and visions would be a way better strategy. He doesn't agree. He doesn't agree. In fact, the reality that you are so ordinary is actually part of his plan. In his second letter to this very church, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, he writes this, but we have this treasure, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, we have this treasure in jars of clay, ordinary vessels, like putting gold in a clay pot, okay? Jars of clay, Why? to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. That means God, in order to preserve his glory and to make sure that we know what the treasure actually is, uses ordinary messengers to deliver it so that we never mistake the messenger for being the treasure, but rather the message that they have. Now, I don't know about you guys, that doesn't sound efficient to me, but it's beautiful. And so if you battle the sense of like, there's nothing special about me. Like, why would God use me? You're exactly the kind of person that he does use. You are. And some of you guys maybe don't feel that reality because you've just gotten so used to giving into your fears that you don't actually step out and put yourself in a spot where he has to show up. Preaching to myself right now, actually. It's not about you, but if you keep preaching, there will be some that will respond. I was reading a book about miraculous healing uh, earlier uh, a couple months ago, and I was struck by sometimes when we pray for healing and it doesn't happen, we get really discouraged and we're like, "Well, that didn't work." But you know what? Sometimes when we pray, God does heal. And so there was this, this pastor from Africa talking to this, uh, this guy, J.P. Moreland, who's a, a philosophy professor, and he said, you know what? If I pray for 200 people, God is going to heal some of them. So why not keep praying? I think the same thing is true when it comes to sharing the message of the gospel. Not everybody will respond, I promise you. But some will. So keep going. There are many in this city who are his, and he'll be with you. Paul stays 18 months, but all good things have to come to an end. And so after 18 months, this happens in verse 12. But when Galia was proconsul of Achaia, that's the southern part of Greece, uh, a proconsul was like a governor. It was like the highest ranking Roman official of that particular area. The Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Now, could you imagine if we went to the mayor of the city and said, we've got this theological controversy that we need you to settle? (laughs) They'd be like, wrong court here, right? But when Paul was about to open his mouth, open his mouth to give a defense, Gallio said to the Jews, if this were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things, and he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. It's interesting that often Priscilla and Aquila are listed or told that way, uh, Notice anything different about maybe a traditional culture and how they're named? Often Priscilla is named first. Now that could have been because she was from a more prominent wealthy family and had a higher social status. But often most most scholars think that she was actually probably the more gifted one in Christian ministry. Uh, Of that particular couple, that they were powerhouse together. But often she's listed first because she had a really significant ministry. I just want to say that, but, I mean, we're a complementarian church. We believe that there are differences between men and women in certain roles for each, but we believe that all of them are called to ministry. And Priscilla is a beautiful example of that, one who God uses in ministry with her husband. And often she's a little bit more prominent than he is in the letters. Sometimes we just have to read and let it just provoke us and challenge our thinking, right? It says a lot about this, but that's for another sermon because I don't want all the emails this week. So, uh... What's striking about this story is is Gallio's complete and utter indifference to what's going on, isn't it? He's like, I don't care. Now, we might think, oh, this is noble. He sides with the Christians, and he doesn't persecute them like the Jewish people want. No, he doesn't care. He's like... Why are you wasting my time? And to show that he doesn't care, even when the, the Jews probably illegally seize Sosthenes, who's now the new ruler of the synagogue, because the other guy got kicked out, and they beat him, he's like, whatever. So it's not like he's this noble character here, like defending the Christians. He simply doesn't care. After this, Paul stays a few, a, a little bit longer And then he brings Priscilla and Aquila with him because they become invaluable in ministry. And he's like, this couple needs to come with me to continue doing ministry. And they take off. And then we get a bunch of travel details that we'll cover in verses 18 to 23. And then we'll wrap it up, okay? After this, Paul stayed many days longer and took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria... Remember Syria is where Antioch was? That was his sending church. That was the one who kind of commissioned him and Barnabas for the journey and commissioned him and Silas for the journey. It was like his sending church. He's going to go back and give a report to them. Set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sencre, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow, and they came to Ephesus, and he left them there left Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. He's like, well, I'm in the most important city in Asia Minor. I might as well at least go to the synagogue. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. And so next chapter is actually Paul bringing the gospel to Ephesus after he went back and reported. And so God did will, right? Right? But, but, but he said, No, it's important that I go back and, and give an update on this church that has sacrificed much to send me and give them a report of how the gospel has been spread all over. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church. That's probably a reference to, to Jerusalem. Caesarea was kind of the seaport that they used. And then went down to Antioch. Anytime you go from Jerusalem, you're going down in a Jewish person's mind. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. uh, So why are all these travel details included? Because they happened. And because uh, often we get the highlights of ministry, but there's a lot of ordinary in between. There's a lot of travel. There's a lot of mundane. There's a lot of details that have to come together. There's a lot of ministry that maybe doesn't rise to the level of, let's write it down for all in history to remember, but it's significant and it matters. And he goes back and he's encouraging and strengthening the churches that he's already started. We're told he, at Senkrei he cuts his hair. Uh, many people, because he was under a vow, many people think that he perhaps took a Nazarite vow when he went to the region of Macedonia because of the immorality there, that he basically swore off alcohol during his ministry here, and, and the other things that a Nazarite would do, that that was a temporary vow people could take sometimes. And so when he, and one of the reasons of that, or one of the things of that vow was that your hair would grow long, right? Like, Samson in the Old Testament, right? That was a Nazarite vow, like John the Baptist had a Nazarite vow. Many people think that's what he took, not just that he wanted a haircut like me, um, but that afterwards he cut his hair because he was fulfilling that. It tells us a little bit about, he's, he's thinking about ministry in these different contexts and what might trip him up. When he leaves, he takes Priscilla and Aquila with him. He finds himself in Ephesus. He says, I'll come back if the Lord wills. And then next chapter, next week in, Ephes, or in Acts chapter 19, we're gonna see that he ends up back in Ephesus And he actually stays there for three years. So that's a lot of details, a bunch of Bible to cover. What do we learn from today's passage? I think three things. One, this story shows us an inspiring vision for life, whether we are married or whether we're single. Aquila and Priscilla is a married couple serving the Lord together with all of their hearts, partnered together in God's kingdom work. When you're looking for a spouse, you should say, Do I like this person? Am I attracted to this person? Do I have a good friendship with this person? But you know the other thing you should ask? What might God do if he brought us together? Or how can we serve the Lord more effectively together than just as single people? That should factor in on your choice of a spouse. Or your choice of not to get married and to pursue a life of singleness and serving the Lord wholeheartedly. Paul, Timothy, and Silas give us a picture of that. I think as a church, we need to rediscover not just the beauty of marriage, but also the beauty of singleness. And that you can actually live a fulfilled, fully human life without having sex. You want to talk about a countercultural narrative right now? They think that that's actually what much of our world teaches us, that that's actually the prominent thing that defines us the most. And as Christians, the answer to that is not that there's a fulfilling life as a married person or as a single person. That'll be a sermon someday. So single people, you've been given a gift. Serve the Lord wholeheartedly in that season. Married people, you have been given a gift. Serve the Lord wholeheartedly in this season. Okay, second, this story helps us to develop a longer view of ministry. It gives us endurance, steadfastness, or like what I like to call grit, (laughs) just a stick-to-itiveness And sometimes ministry is just staying in there. What helps us to do that? Those three promises. That Jesus is with us, that he protects us, and that our ministry is not in vain. That you are not alone. Jesus is with us. He sends his spirit to comfort us, to empower us. And the reality is, on the cross, Jesus was completely and utterly alone and forsaken. And the good news for that is that you never will be. Okay? So you're never alone. He is with you. He is empowering you through the presence of the Spirit. Second, that he will protect you. This doesn't mean that it won't cost you something or that you won't ever be physically harmed. But he will be with you in it. See, Jesus was beaten and killed in order that we might have protection from God's wrath and the eternal effects of Satan's sin and death. Despite what might happen on this side of eternity, we will never face that because Jesus already has. And third, your ministry is not in vain. When things look dark, when things look bleak, when it's not as fruitful as you long for it to be, remember that, remember that the resurrection has happened. Remind each other. The tomb's still empty, isn't it? Because the resurrection reminds us of Jesus' victory over Satan his victory over sin, his victory over death, and that the, the labor that he has called you to is not in vain. Now, some of us will have more fruitful lives and ministry than others, but it will not be in vain. So don't give up. There are people in this city, in the twin ports, that are his. They just need to hear the gospel. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for how it challenges and provokes us and encourages us. Would you stir our hearts to love you more, Jesus? Would you help us to faithfully endure in ministry and to stick it out? We ask in Jesus' name, amen.